So how's it going? It's going pretty good. Um, work has been a little crazy, a little chaotic, um, but we're doing some good things there. And home is kind of the same way. <laughs> and more importantly, I guess uh, in our open source community, we're seeing a lot of uh, good things happening. We had, since we talked last, we've had like what, new Apple stuff, Android stuff, um, some fun things to pick on people for, and more importantly, uh, what's coming up, what I wanted to talk up, uh, talk about later is your work on provenance. So. so what's going on with Apple and Google or Android? Yeah, so Android, what was it? Their uh, Pixel phone, right? Their mm-hmm. $1,000 investment. Really? I thought it was like 600 something. Well, apparently by the time you get a case and the protection plan and all the other things that you need, it's it's right around 800 900 bucks to get anything, you know, pretty usable. And my understanding is is that the hardware is actually pretty solid, um really high quality glass, high quality screen, the finish on the buttons and the aluminum and all this kind of stuff is really fantastic. Um and apparently it's, uh, I don't know, it's like another one of those things where people saw the price tag, and I don't know if they're having mixed feelings about it, um, or they don't see the value in it, but apparently they've taken a little bit from every flagship device, you know, the fingerprint scanner of this, the beveled edges of that, the rounded corners of this, and they've made quite a, an impressive piece of hardware. So um, I'm not interested in it, honestly, and... Uh, I know that a lot of people are, but that is the latest I've heard from Google and their flagship device. Isn't it uh, restricted to Verizon? Uh, I don't think so, because I'm almost certain that it works on Project Fi. I think that they talked about a Verizon exclusive contract, but it is actually, from my understanding, not tied to a specific carrier. You can unlock it and use it on other carriers. I think what they're saying is is that Verizon is the own, only carrier of AT&T and Sprint and whomever who can uh who will have that phone. Yeah, but Verizon's CDMA. So you couldn't use it on I mean is T-Mobile. it a GSM phone? Uh I thought it was both because I was under the impression that it worked with Project Fi as well. Uh. So um yeah, and the Project 5 phones, they do both because they're on Sprint and T-Mobile. Huh. Um, so Sprint does the CDMA stuff and T-Mobile does the GSM. I actually just watched a uh, video today. It was like some hardware reviewer guy's like full first day with the phone. Yeah. And he basically said that it was uh, it was an okay phone. The video and the camera are really good, but it's kind of boring. Like, as far as the hardware and uh, that the new version of Android that's on it is nothing really that special. Yeah, I mean, I I don't really know what else we're going to get in phones that are going to make them that much more revolutionary. uh, revolutionary. And they're certainly not going to be competing with a laptop in the $800, $900 price range. So at this point, I think we're kind of splitting hairs and hardware vendors are looking for something um, to make you want to buy it. And I think compulsion is really the last thing that they have right now that they're using. But as far as phones go, yeah. Um, 
I'm not really sold that it's all that interesting. Yeah. And uh, I don't know how long we've been away. Didn't the iPhone 7 come out since we've been gone? Yeah, I think it did too. The iPhone 7 came out and um, there was a, a few big things that they noted about the iPhone 7, right? With uh, They did away with the headphone jack. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, that's the only thing people talk about. But I think there's really quite a few th- improvements that they made to the hardware itself. Uh, yeah. I mean, the camera on the uh, 7 Plus has the dual cameras. Right. And the, opti- and the optics on that uh, camera are supposed to be, you know, worlds ahead of what you can get um, as far as cameras go on mobile phones. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I I think that's a great thing because we take thousands and thousands of pictures with those phones, but also keep in mind that it doesn't compete with, you know, even mediocre optics on an actual camera. So we won't give it too much street cred, but, but from the pictures I've seen of that, the, uh, the optics of those cameras is absolutely phenomenal. And I think one of those things that is hard to do in a small form factor, like a phone is the optical like the lenses of it is hard to get right. And uh, one, they did the lenses much better. And two, they're combining two cameras and using a little bit of technology to get more from uh, the optics that they have. And, and what I'm referring to is usually when you see a professional photo, you see like the focal point is either right at you or the background or you can do the background and not what's right in front of you. And they're actually able to start to balance that a little bit because they have two cameras and they can focus in two places uh, on the image at the same time. So they're doing some really cool things in software with that, and I think that the um, the results that they're getting are really, really impressive. Uh, yeah, I wish they, would, they were able to put the two cameras on the normal 7 because the uh, 7 Plus is just too big for me. Yeah. Well, while while we're on hardware, um, I bought a Ubiquity. What is that? It's a wireless access point, and uh, I, I wound up with the AC Pro version, and uh, it does a really nice job. I was kind of, you know, before we were talking about me using my APU2 and using AthN, and I looked at the number of devices in my house, and I, and I said, well, all but a couple support um, wireless AC, and I don't know that it's going to make that much of a difference, but, uh, you know, I'll invest in the wireless access point and see how it does. And, and in all honesty, it's, it's made a drastic, drastic improvement to everything on the network. And in fact, my network sa- or my internet saturation <laughs> has gone way up. I, I think, uh, you know, wireless points... Wireless access points are seldom the bottleneck, but in this case, with all the devices we had, it it was creating some congestion. So the Ubiquity is a a small little circular wireless access point. You plug it into um, their power over Ethernet adapter that they include, and then that power over Ethernet adapter goes to power, and it goes to your LAN, and you fire up some configuration software. I used the Mac to do it. Um, and you set up a couple things on the wireless access point, And it basically, I, to me, it behaves like a bridge. 
Um, it hands out DHCP leases. Um, now I don't have, you know, the wireless on one subnet and the wired stuff on another subnet. Obviously you can do that if you want to, um, but it, it just makes it a little bit easier to have the same IP range, um, you know, when you're copying files to and fro. So really, really happy with it. Wireless AC works well, and it, I think it's um, a 3x3 MIMO, so uh, it's quite capable of handling all the devices we have. Yeah. So is the Ubiquiti stuff like for kind of the prosumer market, or is it like can the average Joe set it up? I think the average Joe could safely set it up. It It is one of those things where I think it's targeted at schools and enterprise level um, market, but I think that uh, if you're an end user who's set up any kind of wireless access point successfully, you're going to be able to figure this out. Was the setup software in Java or something? Like, did, there's no web interface? There is a web interface, but it, it made you fire up some software to um, discover the access point initially, and mm. then once it discovered it and a couple things happened, then it was able to uh, fire up a web interface, and you can manage it through a web interface after that. Um, as far as I know, the initial setup is the only time you need that software and it enables certain features on the Ubiquity, uh, and I forget what they are, but apparently, you know, certain types of monitoring and usage and all that kind of stuff require you to have this software running alongside your wireless access point. And I think that they're feeding some data back to their home base. So uh, if you guys are worried about that, you know, you can kind of take, take a look at mitigating that communication back and forth. Uh, in between. I'm not going to um, tell you whether you should or you shouldn't, so you'll have to read the fine print. They're very clear about it in their documentation that they're going to gather um, some metrics, temperatures, power consumption levels, error rates, a whole bunch of things. So mm -hmm. just know that getting into it, that they're going to collect that information. So yeah, that's the hardware stuff. Um, I kind of wanted to make fun of OpenSSL's set of CVEs that came rolling in. Um, let's see. So we last, our last podcast was on the 20th, I think. And a couple days later, OpenSSL released, it looks like a dozen uh, CVEs. Some of them were high. Most of them were low. One of them was moderate. And uh, these were basically, you know, just... OpenSSL being OpenSSL, a bunch of like kind of like dumb mistakes that they just, they never scan their code, they don't care about what they're writing, they don't test anything, they don't understand what they're uh, putting into their software. And uh, so, of course, there's a wiki page that compares these vulnerabilities in OpenSSL and their versions and their severity and the impact on LibreSSL. And this was one of those cases where um, these issues were fixed in, or, or the one high severity issue was fixed in a prior version of LibreSSL. And I want to say that all these vulnerabilities were introduced after the fact, so they didn't exist in LibreSSL. Hmm. And then four days later, on the 26th of September, came two more CVEs um, for 
bugs that were introduced in the fixes. So their CVEs had a critical and a moderate severity um, CVE created from their patches. So uh, on, on one hand, I'm kind of picking on these guys, but on the other hand, this is this is really kind of a sad state of affairs to be in. Um, OpenSSL has many, many people depending on it, many, many people using it. When you publish a CVE, you have a whole lot of supporting documentation that comes with it. There's a whole lot of um, people who see this documentation, they see the fixes that you propose, and you're actually creating worse bugs with your fixes than what you just fixed. And that's pretty scary. Uh, I mean, one, it's scary because the process should have caught this. Like, people should have said, okay, here's how to mitigate this issue, here's the remediation, you apply this patch, here's what it does. You should be very thorough about it. And then here we are with worse problems on our hands. So I think that that is really, really uh, a reflection of that community and what they're uh, up against right now with how they're handling their software. So props to the LibreSSL guys for taking their time fixing things, um, being very thorough. I think that that goes a long way. And I, I want to emphasize here, too, that the OpenSSL folks have some sort of sharing and communication with the LibreSSL folks and the other way as well. But here's a case where, um, I mean, no one is really paying attention and scrutinizing this stuff on the OpenSSL team or whatever they're doing and this is the type of thing that would have been caught if you would have been being thorough like the uh, like the LibreSSL folks are so I don't know I it, it started off as a poking fun and then I realized how horrible that kind of thing really is and it's not something we should poke fun at it's something we should really take an honest look at and if we want to fix OpenSSL fix OpenSSL but at the same time maybe just start using software that doesn't have those issues and doesn't frequently introduce those type of issues. I uh, I just went to the OpenSSL website, and their big news item is that they used the, uh, the funding that they have from the core infrastructure initiative mm -hmm. to fly in most of their team to all meet face-to-face, -face, which sounds like a hackathon. But the big news was that they just moved from whatever they were on to GitHub. And then they declared a bug bankruptcy, to use their words, where they just closed any bugs that were more than two years old. Hmm. And that's like something to be proud of, I guess. I don't know. It seems kind of weird. They should probably look at those bugs. I don't know. Well, and, and moreover, the people who are sending them money... Uh, I, I actually think that this worked out okay. Um, the money that was, my understanding is, the money that was given from the core infrastructure initiative went to Linux um, so that it could be distributed to OpenSSL, to LibreSSL, to these people who were working on this. Is that correct? Uh, I do not know. I'm, I'm almost certain that some other company is responsible for um, taking those funds and allocating them 
where they see fit. And I think that that's a great thing to have in an open source community. And admittedly, this is a little bit of a, a strange place because here you have one source of funding that is giving money to what you would consider competing or parallel products that are trying to solve a similar problem. So, but at the same time, um, I just think those OpenSSL folks have, um, you know, made such a ruckus for so long that, you know, somebody has to step in and, and be able to solve the same problem that they're trying to solve and they have to do it the right way. And I think that the funding and the community support and, um, all that kind of stuff is going to follow. I think right now there's so much visibility into it. Uh, one, because of LibreSSL, and two, because of the amount of CVEs that have been exposed because um, of the initial discovery. You know, OpenSSL said had one or two significant vulnerabilities, and then people started to get eyes on it, and then people started to scrutinize it. And, um, you know, we had the LibreSSL fork, and then other people have continued to scrutinize it, and it's just been a very eye-opening experience. And now we're seeing communities shift, um, boring SSL, LibreSSL, that kind of stuff. And I think that's a good thing for us as consumers. The thing I don't understand about OpenSSL is that it's like this library that's underneath everything, but uh, they don't want to do the amount of changes that LibreSSL did because of, I guess, breakage. But if they're worried about breaking stuff, why do they keep adding things to it? Like, they should just be spending all of their time going through all those bugs and seeing if there is something there that is a security problem and, you know, rip out stuff that does, I mean, I guess they would just be doing the same thing that LibreSSL did, but it's like, if you have this library that doesn't need to be constantly updated, what are, I mean, they have a picture of their team here, there's like 12 of them? 12 developers yeah. like what are they all doing yeah if they're not and, and, like writing new code and adding new algorithms and stuff like that which they probably shouldn't be doing until they get a lot of these bugs fixed yeah i completely agree and and for comparison the libri ssl team is um basically what is it bob beck joel singh uh brent cook uh why am i forgetting the guy's name uh Miode was working on it ted was working on it a little bit um why can't I remember the other guy's name? But basically, it's about a half dozen guys. And um, they they did a really, really thorough job. And they just applied very fundamental things to the source tree and cleaned a bunch of stuff up. And I know that the, the FIP certification comes into play on the OpenSSL stuff. But even more than that, with the new code that they're writing they're still introducing the same kind of problems. And that's one of the things we've seen, you know, I would say maybe a dozen times where they've written new code or implemented new features. The LibreSSL team has imported some of them, but they haven't imported others. And we're finding these same kind of vulnerabilities in these new features. So they're not going to be able to go back and fix code that already exists with the same type of development pattern that they have going for them now. They need to apply some sort of standards. They need to get some sort of process in place where they can scan the code, where they get an understanding of a, a basic design pattern. I mean, it, you know, this is one of those things that I love about Theo. 
Theo will find a pattern and he says, this pattern is always broken. Um, you know, we found this pattern 300 times in our tree and 200 were bugs. And everybody says, well, then you can still use it 100 times. And he says, no, get the pattern out of the tree. It's, it's a huge problem. Stop doing it. Do this instead. And uh, I think the same thing needs to happen for the OpenSSL folks. They need to look and find those patterns. They need to fix the ones that they have. They need to stop doing them moving forward. And um, just pay attention. Uh, Coverity scans and those types of things. Uh, LLVM and CLang, they have great static analysis. They need to start doing it. So I don't want to spend too much more time on that, um, but I do think it's kind of an interesting topic. But the one big thing I did really want to talk about is with you, because you're working on something actually very, very cool. And you talked about it last episode, and um, you were talking about the mechanics of how provenance works. But since then, you sent out an email to the mailing list, and basically it's a huge dialogue about here's what we discussed, here's why we think it's good, here's what we're trying to accomplish, has a huge diff, and um, you actually finished your scan of the CVS source tree to apply um, provenance to all these change sets. And um, I wanted to really like almost interview you to, <laughs> to like get an effect um, because when you sent out that email, there was a lot of feedback. Most of it was people saying, yeah, that's great. Um, but talk a little bit about um, what happened when you sent out that email to the mailing list. Uh, so this is something I've been working on for basically since the hackathon. Um, I had sent out an early version of it that was basically working. Um, I'm looking at my email now. The first version was sent out on September 10th mm-hmm. to um, just the guys that I was talking to at the hackathon about it. Mm-hmm. Um, the feedback was, uh, there was some feedback there that was like switching from SHA-256 to the new SHA-512-256 stuff that went in. So I had to upgrade or update the algorithm, which was pretty easy to do. Um, we talked about uh, Theo had some input about changing the format of the commit IDs, um, and that required some other code changes. And then that was basically it. Um, I was just kind of playing with it on my laptop and rerunning my um, program to my Ruby program that converts all the stuff and does all the hashing and um, was able to find some little bugs in the C code and some um, weird quirks with the actual CVS repository. So I identified, um, I think there's three files that are kind of broken um, Mm -hmm. that was kind of surprising. Um, So I need to uh, have Theo fix those. Um, There's like uh, files that um, have versions missing like the versions don't increment or there's missing like initial versions of the file. So I don't know if those were because of some kind of like copyright problem or something that they actually had to be ripped out of the repository or if it's a bug or what, but yeah. Anyway. So, um, yeah, so I got some initial feedback and Theo's been kind of bugging me, uh, almost every day. Like (laughs) 
he really wants it to go in and I'm kind of scared to because it's a huge diff and uh, it's, you know, mucking with the uh, CVS repository. Mm -hmm. So he asked me to send it to um, the two hackers and just basically get input from everybody else before it goes in. So I sent it to hackers and um, it's kind of a big diff, I guess. So it's probably hard for people to kind of digest and go yeah. through it and, and figure out what it's doing. Um, you kind of just have to apply it and then take the, uh, the, the generated files that I have and put them in your CVS root. And then you can play with the new CVS show command based on that file. So you can kind of yeah. just like uh, apply the diff, compile it, and then run it and see what it does. And then you kind of get a, an idea of how it works. Um, so then there was some kind of back and forth from people on hackers, um, either agreeing with it or disagreeing with it in principle. Yeah. Um, let's talk about that because I think, uh, a couple of these things are maybe a little bit interesting. Uh, what, what I saw was mostly people just thought it was a great idea. Um, so talk a little bit about the, the obvious benefits just again, so we have like an idea of what this is trying to accomplish in case uh, somebody didn't listen to the earlier podcast. Uh, so basically this establishes providence for a CVS tree. So when you do a CVS in it on a, you know, like a new CVS repository, or in our case, we would just uh, generate a random one for the repository we already have. Uh, so when you do that, it stores a, it generates a random commit ID and stores it in the CVS root. And then when you import a new root level directory, like for us, that would be um, source or ports or www. Uh, it starts a new um, commit ID ledger, basically. Mm -hmm. And every time you commit on top of that, it uh, creates a commit ID for that new commit that is the uh, SHA-512-256 hash of the output of the diff that you're committing and it includes a line that says what the previous commit ID hash was. So all of those root level ones like source and ports, they start um, from that initial commit ID as their previous one. So basically all of them source from this initial random commit ID, which is uh, referred to as the Genesis commit uh, mm -hmm. commit ID in the code and stuff. Um, and so that's basically it. And so the idea is that every commit ID that is generated is based on the one before it. And the hash of the, or the hash that's in the commit ID is the cryptographic hash of the diff that's being committed. So if you commit something, it generates a commit ID, and then you go in and change the RCS files to, I don't know, insert a backdoors or there's corruption or something like that. The, uh, yep. the commit IDs will not, uh, hash properly anymore when you go and, and check them out. Um, and so that, in a nutshell, establishes provenance for the entire tree. And then so I wrote a, uh, the program that I wrote many years ago to establish commit IDs. Back then it was just a random commit ID um, for every commit in the tree since the trees were initially created by Theo. Um, I updated those that program and basically ran it through the entire uh, source tree for every commit. And so it generated commit IDs 
uh, with the proper hash for every change set in uh, in our tree. Yep. And that's awesome. And actually, that was one of the things that came up uh, in the discussion on the mailing list. And that was uh, someone commented that integrity is not a job of the source control management. And, um, you know, at first glance, you might say, well, of course it's not. And then some of you might be on the completely other side and say, well, of course it is, because if your source tree doesn't have integrity, then how can you trust it? And and I think that's probably one of the broader points that... um, that brought this all about. Right now, in CVS, someone can, or I mean, we do when we have a, like a mistake in in a commit. We can go and edit the file by hand, and there's no record that that file changed, or there's no real audit history or trail or accountability um, to know that something changed. And so. That is that is the essential feature that provenance brings is that now um, we're validating the integrity of the entire source control system, and we can prevent people from going in and making changes. Uh, and if they do make a change, we can know that um, you know when we pull out code, hey, something's not right here. Yeah. Um, so I mean, as far as establishing uh, integrity. I mean, you could say that like the file system should do that to guard against corruption, but you have to factor in the case of uh, somebody intentionally corrupting something or uh, inserting a backdoor. And so obviously like no file system uh, hashing is going to uh, protect against that. Um, So basically it's the diff is kind of done um, it needs some more testing and some little fixes because the way that it has to uh, figure out the hash is that it has to commit the files, the RCS files, and then pull them back out because it has to, um, when you pull them back out, it does the keyword expansion, so like dollar sign, OpenBSD dollar sign, that mm-hmm. expands to the commit uh, you know, date and time and all that. That has to be there in the diff because when you check that code out, you're going to get the version with that stuff expanded. And so you want what you get from CVS to match what you actually, or what was actually in the hash. So it has to do this in like a two-phase um, process. And right mm-hmm. now it has to give up the CVS lock in between committing the files to RCS and then doing the diff on them. And I need to figure out um, how to move that the diffing inside of the lock so that um, just so that there isn't that um, small window of time when those files are unlocked and it's trying to um, pull them back out. Yeah. Um, so I need to fix that bug, and then I, I guess I could be committed. Um, the since I the last thing that I added to it was basically to um, go back to the old behavior of just generating a random commit ID, so that before this is turned on, we can commit it and keep using that code, and it keeps writing random commit IDs for change sets like it did before. Yeah. Um, so that once I do finally run the conversion one last time and then go back and then actually add those commit IDs to every revision of every file in the tree, um, we the program will see every uh, change set uh, up until when I run that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there still needs to be more like uh, discussion or somebody else looking at it as far as like what it actually accomplishes. Um, because there was uh, somebody raised the question. Are you going to talk about the mirrors distributing 
yeah, how they're syncing out from CVS to, you know, some of the mirrors and, and how that this doesn't really validate integrity uh, between the master and the mirrors. The way that the mirrors sync with each other is through uh, CV Sync. Right. And CV Sync doesn't, it's not like RSync where it just like copies the any file that changed. Uh, CV Sync tries to do things according to RCS files. So it will detect an update in an RCS file, and then rather than copying the whole new file over, it just copies that chunk and then tries to rewrite the RCS file. Um, I don't think it does it in place, but it, it does it so that it doesn't have to full, pull the whole file over, which doesn't really bias anything. And I think it's, I mean, it's caused us more problems in the past than I think it's helped as far as like saving bandwidth. Because yeah. um, when the initial commit ID stuff went in, CV Sync was the thing that broke because it didn't know, or something to do with its notion of commit IDs was broken. And so while it was trying to actually process the commit ID uh, lines in the RCS files, it like got confused and, and puked or something. So I would rather that the mirrors just sync with like rsync, um, and then we don't have to worry about any other stuff. Um, right. But the problem there is also that, um, so there was like a question of whether it should hash the full file. That's right. Or just the diff. Yeah. Or the diff or the RCS file. Uh, I don't think it can do the RCS file because you can change things with that, that, uh, don't commit. So you can, if you add a CVS tag to a tree, which Theo does every release that just writes an RCS tag in the uh rcs file but it's it's not an actual commit so that wouldn't get written anywhere um so i don't think that would work and then there was the question of whether it should hash the entire file or the diff and the issue there is that uh this establishes provenance and integrity only if you're looking for it so you can check out a full CVS tree with all these commit IDs, and if CVS doesn't actually verify any of those hashes while it's doing this, you don't really gain anything. You would only right. gain something if um, you went and actually looked at it, or if like Theo ran something on the CVS server every every night or something that scanned the tree and looked for problems. So uh, I was trying to figure out a way that um, it could do some kind of verification while you check out and update. Mm -hmm. But then you run into the same issue that you would have with Git, which is if you clone a Git tree from GitHub and then you, um, or say you just clone a Git tree from some random Git server uh, that's a mirror for something, and then um, you update from some other server, that server can give you new commits that aren't on the like true Git server. And mm -hmm. you'd have no idea because all it's basically doing is giving you the all the code that you have plus additional commits and then saying this commit that I'm giving you is the new um, head or master, like I guess it's head commit. Right. And then you would only know that there's a problem when you go back and sync against the old server. And then that server is like, wait, what? what commit are you talking about? I don't know. I don't have that one. Right. So. And, and, for, and for us with CVS, like obviously we don't sync um, to anything other than CVS. 
except for the mirrors. So that's the, I mean, this isn't, this is a little different than the distributed model in that regard, but we still have the issue of the mirrors. You know, the mirror could say, yep, here's the new stuff. And if someone wanted to do something malicious, theoretically they could at that point, right? Right. So I'd at least like to account for the case of that happening. And then the the only, the way that you could detect that is to do a CVS checkout from a random CVS server and then just do an update against another CVS server. And if the two of them don't complain, then you know that you're good. But if one of them complains, you know that something is off on one of those two servers. Um, I think that would work. But the way that the commit IDs are now, that verification isn't there. So you're not you're not getting that during a uh, a checkout or an update. Now how does so when you do uh, CVS show right now, what happens um, behind the scenes to produce that output? Uh, so CVS show, you can do CVS show in a number, and then it interprets that as a change set. Um, oh yes, I didn't explain that. Part of the commit ID is there, the commit ID string, um, like if you know what a git commit uh, hash looks like, that's just a SHA-1 string, so it's kind of short. This one uses a version number at the front, then a dash, then a SHA-512-256 hash in hexadecimal, and then there's like a padded change set number on the end. So that's the other property that the, this gives us in CVS is that every change set is ordered, like in subversion. So you can reference a commit by its change set number instead of the long hash. So you can do CVS show and then like one, two, three, four, and then that knows to look up the commit ID for change or that has change set one, two, three, four. Or you can do CVS show um, part of a commit hash, like you can in Git. And then if that ends up being ambiguous because more than one hash matches against it, it errors out. Or you can just do CVS show, and that works just like git show, where it shows you the latest um, commit. So when you send that to this, uh, when you issue CVS show, it talks to the server, and then the server looks up, or it opens up that um, commit ID ledger for that uh, root tree. So that would be either source or ports or whatever. And then... It scans that file looking for that commit ID that matches. And then that line that's in the ledger has the commit ID. And then uh, a, I think it's tab delimited, um, list of each file and then the revision numbers of that file that were in that commit. Mm -hmm. So every time you commit, it's writing that ledger, that line in the ledger, so that when you do CVS show, the server can quickly, so it pulls that line out and then the server knows which files to go look at. It opens up those RCS files and then does the diff just as if you did a CVS diff uh, dash R whatever dash R whatever and then the file. It basically just does that for each file that's listed and then it um, prints out like a header at the top which shows the, the committer username, the date, uh, mm -hmm. the commit ID hash and then the previous um, hash. And then so Basically, on the server, when it's calculating a new commit ID, it's internally it's just running CVS show, and then it hashes the output of that. Um, like literally, uh, it just removes the first line because the first line is obviously the commit ID, and it doesn't know the commit ID yet. So it just right. um, while it's doing it, it just uses all zeros for that, and then the hash output doesn't have that uh, first line in it. Nice. Yeah, that's awesome stuff. Um, can we talk real quick about the history thing one more time? Um, I mentioned it earlier. Right now, when we modify history in place, 
Uh, this is one thing that came up in the list. People said, well, what happens when we go in here and we have to fix something? If you try and change the history here, it's going to break this provenance. And, um, you know, someone saw that as a concern. And, and that's because our current pattern, if we have a, a commit go in that's wrong or something needs changed, we have a utility that goes in there and fixes it. And, it, and essentially the utility just edits the files. Um, and what the point of all of this is, is that we actually want to establish history as the initial commit went in, there was a mistake, we fixed the mistake, um, and here's what, you know, the, his the history is actually reflecting reality at that point rather than covering up what was missed. And, um, and, and I think that, in my opinion, that's what you want to see because you want to see, hey, this was a mistake, we mitigated that, we fix that or here's the correction um, rather than trying to solve hey I need to undo this provenance and go back and and tweak some things and I uh, and I think that you would probably agree with that obviously right yeah um, I mean it came up that uh, there might be the up or the case where we have to remove code from the tree because of um, copyright infringement or mm -hmm. something else and while that is certainly possible, I guess, um, I don't think it's ever happened in our tree. And if it were to happen in the future, it would be very rare that it would be like a special case that I'm not going to like put all this code into CVS to handle this itself. Um, but basically, it's the same problem in any other revision control system. I mean, if you do it in Git or Subversion, you, like, you can do it, but you have the same problem. You have to go rewrite history and then everything from that history point forward is now changed because everything that they're referencing uh, going back is different. So yep. the same thing would happen CVS with the CVS provenance diff. You would have to recalculate that um, hash if the diff output changed, and then you would just have to like rerun my program, I guess, and then recalculate hashes for every change set going forward and then just run CVS admin dash capital C and then change the commit ID for every one of those revisions. Yeah. Well, you were talking about, um, the hashing you were saying, um, you, you were considering changing it from just hashing the diff, uh, from the commit to the entire file. I, I don't know which file you meant by that or like the entire source file. Is that what you were talking about doing? Yeah, it would basically just, um, if you did a, it wouldn't be the actual RCS file, but if, uh, if you did an RCS checkout of that RCS file and then produced the plain text version of the whole file assembled at that version, it would hash all of those together. <clears throat> um, okay. and then that way, cause the problem is like, if you do a CVS checkout from an, a non CVS server, you want the current tree, you get the current tree, but you have no reference as far as what the hashes mean. So you have no way of verifying that on your own machine because the hashes are for every diff. So the only way that you could verify that the tree that you have on your machine is actually the, that matches the commit IDs that we um, would publish or something like that mm -hmm. is to use the, uh, is to do like CVS show one and then pipe that to patch, and that creates all the files for revision one. Then do CVS show two, and then pipe that to patch, and then that patches those files and creates some new ones. And you do that for every commit going all the way forward. 
and then you would stop at the point where your CVS checkout was, and then you'd have to compare each file in both trees to see whether you got the identical files from that CVS tree mm-hmm. or from the non CVS server. And you right. could do that, but the source tree has 177,000 commits. Uh, so that would take a very long time to uh, basically do CVS show whatever and then pipe that to patch. You'd basically like be thrashing your machine for many hours or days. Um, and it just, you know, it's not feasible. Like no one's going to do that. And if no one does that, then like the point of this is kind of moot because, um, you know, it's not providing anything really. Yeah. So I was trying to figure out a way that the hash of the each of each file as it after it was committed to could be stored in that ledger. And then when you check out those files, the file that you get from CVS should match that hash. Mm-hmm. And that hash is separate from the commit ID hash. The commit ID hash is over the entire diff, but then those hashes are stored in the um, in the ledger, but then they would have to come back out somehow to be in the diff output so that uh, that is included in the hash, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I need to figure out how to do that because I think that would be a better solution because that way when you just do an initial checkout or an update, each time you're getting new files from CVS, uh, the CVS, your local CVS client could do that hashing and then verify that it matches the hashes that it got from the yeah. server, but then you, I guess, run into the same problem of, well, the server could just give you bogus data and say that, no, this is the hash that you should be looking at, but it is the one that includes the backdoor. What if we, um, what if we use Signify? Uh, could you sign the, the digest or ledger that you're talking about uh, using, you know, whatever key happens to be you know, we choose for that. I know there's different ones for ports and all that kind of stuff. If we signed it, um, you could almost use Signify to check that too. And then you'd know if it was signed by CVS or someone had impersonated it. Um, So somebody brought that up on Hackers and Theo addressed it. Um, You would basically have to give read access to that private key for every developer because they have to commit on CVS. And if you run into that case... You could just as easily, like somebody could easily just forge a commit as somebody or or do something malicious with that key. So mm-hmm. short of having um, Bob's idea of having a separate privilege separated daemon that runs on CVS. So when you do a CVS commit, you're actually talking to that daemon. And then that mm-hmm. daemon does the f- file writing um, in its own special way, not letting the CVS client do it. But he hasn't started on that. And that's like a big ball of wax that's uh, more complicated yeah so good ideas though i think it's yeah. uh, i think it's awesome what you've been working on because the conversion alone how long did it take to process through 177,000 commits uh so my my chromebook can do it in uh about a day uh, okay. and it was actually taking like many days until i realized i was like why is this script running so slow i mean i know that it's hashing stuff but it's not that complicated and it turns out that um, it was uh, it uses SQLite on the back end to store all the change sets and files and revisions and everything. And mm-hmm. it was um, doing a select statement in a tight loop and that it wasn't using the index on that table. 
Oh. <laughs> yeah. So that was actually eating like like one and a half or two seconds for every commit, and then you multiply yeah. that by 177,000. Um, so that actually took some debugging of looking inside of SQLite to figure out why it wasn't using that index. And then uh, <laughs> so once I, I committed that, I, you know, restarted the whole thing and it just flew so it can do the whole thing in a day now which is pretty good yeah is that what you were complaining about on irc you're complaining something about sql light on there and that must have been that day yeah probably <laughs> that's awesome well um i appreciate you talking about that i thought that was awesome stuff and i that was one of the things um, that I read through on the mailing list and I was r- intrigued about the feedback and I thought people would find it interesting and um, in in a time with open source software or software in general where everyone looks at Git and they look at you know GitHub and they mock OpenBSD for still using CVS, I think that this is one of those things that really honestly brings CVS into um, a distributed source control system age and provides uh, enough features that it, it really um, it seems completely viable to use CVS, and I don't have to change the uh, finger jumping jacks of you know Git to to do it. And I'm I really appreciate that work, and I think it's really awesome that you talked about all that. And uh, I'm looking forward to using CVS with Providence. Um, well, I guess I should state then. Uh, so Theo wants to get all this in to basically have a stable CVS tree mm-hmm. uh, so that we can convert it to something else. <laughs> um, hey. And we don't know what that's going to be yet. And yeah. he kind of wants to, he was talking about just doing it for the exercise of converting it to something like Git and then mm-hmm. converting it back and seeing if everything matches up. Um, I don't really know what that's really going to buy us, but um, the... I mean, it does bring some extra stuff to CVS, but it's kind of like, you know, turd shining, like, especially because I don't even get to work in our open CVS code base. I have to work in this old (laughs) new CVS that's been around for like, I don't know, three decades, four decades. Um, It's terrible code. And luckily, most of the stuff that I had to write is kind of isolated into my own files that I can just easily port to open CVS. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it would be interesting um, to talk to, uh, you know, more developers at maybe another hackathon and see what we want to do with a uh, revision control system, whether that means actually migrating to Git or um, the idea that I talked to Theo about at the hackathon was making a Git-compatible uh, client that mm-hmm. just it its backend is Git compatible. So you could like pull a tree from GitHub or push a tree to GitHub, but the actual interface that you're using is all like our own BSD licensed code and you only get the basic features of like clone, diff, show, push, pull. Um yeah. you know, nothing crazy, nothing not all the rebasing and all that other stuff. So that developers could install the Git the normal Git client if they wanted to. But to do the basic operations of like fetching the OpenBSD source tree um, to you know recompile stable or something, uh, we would have our own client that's uh, that we ship with. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. That kind of feels to me like another not invented here thing. So we're right. you know writing a um, 
we're writing our own client that's never going to be like a fully featured uh, system. So we're kind of going to rely on Git, but then because it's backwards compatible, we can't make the changes like sh uh, shifting to a better hashing algorithm than SHA-1. Um, but then like, you know, if we start writing our own revision system, like that's been done before by big companies and they can't get it right. So, right. you know, we're going to end up with another open CVS where it's like halfway done and we're kind of, you know, crawling around these weird bugs and no one wants to fix it and all that jazz. So I don't really know what we're doing, but um, it would be nice to at least have the historical commit IDs there so that right. uh, no matter what we end up doing, we know that uh, we can pull every change set out in the right order and that it has every file and all the RCS files are fixed and all that jazz. Yeah. Honestly, um, you know, you, you talk about um, wanting to have a, a Git version of our source tree. And, and I don't think that that's a bad thing. If we make a, a secondary distribution channel and people want to use that, that's fine. I know some of the developers that we have now that work on OpenBSD, they, um, they use Git on top of CVS to do diffs and they branch things and do development and then they revert back and then they commit things through CVS, and, you know, um, I think that's fine. So it, making the source code available through another mechanism sounds absolutely fine to me. I, I think that this provenance solves a big problem with CVS um, that we, we gain a lot from, and for those little things that you just talked about that we don't have, I think that it's just such a huge, insurmountable amount of work to, to accomplish those um, I mean, if we don't go through Git or something like that, that it just doesn't make sense. I think this is a nice, happy medium with, you know, fixing what we have now and continuing to use it and, you know, letting people have those tools available to them uh, for the long term. Maybe CVS does go away and, you know, Git becomes our primary data store for our uh, source control or our source code, but I don't know. Um, I would see I would be hard pressed to see that happening honestly in in my eyes anyway. Yeah. So um I guess while we're on that subject we should mention that there is an OpenBSD git tree on GitHub now. Yeah. That is actually linked to from the OpenBSD website. But I will uh maintain that it is not stable yet and it does not have fixes for the commits uh, that are broken in CVS. So that's going to have to do or have to be uh, rewritten at least once. Mm -hmm. So um, I would not recommend uh, doing all your development work off of that tree for, that's on GitHub yet because you're going to have to redo it in the future. Yeah, and just to be clear, that has most of the history in it with the exception of a few errors, right? That has the full history. GitHub shows yep. 176,000 commits. Yep. Uh, that looks similar to what I calculated. Um, but uh, that's done with the CVS to Git uh, conversion tool that's in ports. Um, so it's not going to calculate. Uh, it's not going to like separate and merge commits in the same set of change sets that uh, my program will. So once those are written to the RCS files, those commit IDs, um, the uh, conversion tool should uh, do things differently too. 
because if every revision has a commit ID, it's just going to convert based on commit ID. But right yep. now that tool is um, the other one, the, the one that's in ports. It's doing its own kind of calculations, which are going to be different from what my Ruby program does. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, man, this is cool stuff. I appreciate you talking about it. I'm sure that people are going to love listening to this podcast and hearing what you had to say about uh, Providence. Yeah, it's uh, been fun, and uh, hopefully it uh, provides some additional security for the project. Absolutely. Now, um, I just have to ask you, why didn't you just copy the driver that Linux had that somebody already fixed all the bugs on, and then you could have just copied that code? Oh, yeah. LOL. So yeah, uh, <laughs> my Chrome EC driver finally has yeah, let's light bar support. Um, so I was I tweeted a, a video of because um, I so I wrote the Chrome EC kernel driver a while ago, and then I added support for modifying the light bar that's on the back of the Chromebook Pixel, mm-hmm. and then I um, wrote a small C program that could use the user line interface that that uh, implements so that every time PF blocks a packet, uh, the light bar on the Chromebook flashes red, um, <laughs> which was the idea that I was talking about a long time ago oh, on this show. Nice. Um, yeah, so I was kind of happy with how uh, simple the actual client-side code is. Um, yeah. And so I tweeted a video about that, and this guy that has done work on getting Windows running on Chromebooks uh, saw it, and was kind of like all butthurt about it and was like, oh, yeah. whatever, you can to- you can do that on Linux already. Like, what's the point? So then yeah. he was looking at my OpenBSD uh, trackpad driver for the Chromebook Pixel, the um, I2C driver for the Atmel touchpad mm-hmm. and touchscreen. And mm-hmm. I don't know if he actually like installed OpenBSD and uh, used it or if he was just looking at the code and saw that it wasn't complete. And by complete, like... There are some other Chromebooks, I guess, that use the same chipset, but yep. use it in a slightly different way. So they need additional features added, which I completely admit my driver was not meant to be, you know, the end-all be-all of Chromebook trackpad drivers. Like, it worked on my hardware, and I'm not going to add a bunch of... I probably had code in there at one point, um, just because the the BSD-licensed code that I was looking at had all that stuff in there, but I wasn't going to leave it in there in a broken state because I don't have the hardware to test it. Yeah. So the stuff that I committed is not complete. And so he was like, uh, making these like mocking tweets to his many tens of thousands of followers saying that, uh, the driver (laughs) that I wrote was like a waste of time and that I should have looked at what everybody else had done. IE him. Um, because I guess his trackpad driver is more complete. So I'm curious to know whether he actually installed OpenBSD. I kind of doubt that because uh, it seems like a lot of work just to test someone's trackpad driver and then bash it. (laughs) Um, So, of course, you know, he was asking, or I replied to him, and I was like, well, why don't you actually file a bug report for stuff that doesn't work instead of, you know, uh, grandstanding about it? And he's like, oh, well, you know, where where's the bug system? And I'm like, just email it to bugs. Or I said email it to me, and he's like, "There's, I want to open a bug. And I'm like, okay, email it to bugs at openbsd.org. And he's like, that's it? Like, there's no formal interface? And I'm like, fine, you send bug if you want. Um, (laughs) And, you know, obviously there has been no code from him or any patches or anything from him. It's just, you know, him trying to get attention, I guess, or 
mad that someone else is getting attention for working on similar things that he worked on. But, um, yeah, it's ridiculous. Like, so I actually went and looked at his code to see like, what is he maybe talking about? And his driver is for windows. So he has taken like freely licensed or maybe not freely licensed code from <laughs> like Microsoft Atmel, right. Linux and somewhere else and just kind of mashed it all together to make this driver that works on his trackpads for windows. And that's great, but none of that code probably is like licensed in the same way that OpenBSD would require. So I was kind of anticipating him like making this awful diff of kind of cramming his code into the IATP driver and then like none of it being able to be committed because the license is bad. But I should have known that he was just never going to uh, send a diff or any code or anything. He was just complaining about stuff. Yeah, and and for reference, uh, you've been committing to OpenBSD almost as long as this guy's been alive, so LOL. Yeah, I mean, you know, good for him. He's a teenager and he's written all these these drivers and stuff, but uh, I don't really see what the point of bashing somebody else for working on a completely different operating system. Yeah. It was, uh, I don't know, I found it a little bit amusing, and I don't know why. Probably because I have a, an intern that age who works in the office, and I know kind of how he is <laughs> and how he behaves. But, uh, you know, I, I got such a kick out of it, especially since I know how much effort goes into a driver like that. You know, you look at, you look at the amount of time spent, you know, scanning I2C commands going back and forth and, and all this kind of stuff and, you know, AML dumps and all this you know, ACPI dumps and, you know, you spend so much time reading specs and reading code and trying to gather information and, you know, somebody comes over and, the, and they, they tell you that you're an idiot for not using something that someone else did and, and it's kind of like, it, it, it doesn't even tie out and make sense because if you were an idiot, you would have gone to the working stuff and just used it, but you can't do that and that's what he doesn't realize and I think that that's probably why it it made me laugh so much, you yeah. know. Hey, use this Windows driver I wrote. Yeah. LOL. <laughs> and then, like, he was complaining about the, uh, the uh, when I ripped the images out of the, um, the boot code so that it just shows you the black screen instead of the white, the blinding white uh, core boot thing. Mm-hmm. Um, he was saying that, like, that was dumb, too, because you could just flash his firmware images and then you wouldn't see that splash screen anyway. But you know, it's one, it's just like those old Android ROMs where it's yep. like somebody, uh, just took somebody else's ROM and like hacked it all to pieces and you have no idea what they changed. And they like added all these rad wallpapers and, <laughs> you know, it's just like this complete like bullshit that, uh, you know, it might be cool to, younger people i guess that just want something to look cool but like i'm not gonna go flash some random dude's firmware onto my chromebook and hope that it works and then like you know a year down the road when i need to upgrade it or something like that and he's nowhere to be found i can't get source code for anything and i have no idea what's in it like it's just ridiculous to suggest that um somebody should be doing that i mean Yeah. yeah if he wants to do that and so he can run windows on his chromebooks then more power to him, but to suggest that everybody else should be doing that instead of trying to uh, work with the stock firmware, it's kind of silly. 
Yeah. Uh, touching on the, the Chromebook firmware real quick, you and I had been talking on IRC a little bit about the, um, the core boot gentleman who was working on, um, disabling portions of, uh, Intel's management engine. And apparently he got himself the shell, I guess that's what they call the HP Chromebook 13. Um, he got himself that Chromebook that you and I were working on and, uh, you sold yours, but, you said that he has the core boot um, working with a lot of the portions of the management engine disabled mm-hmm. on his Chromebook now, and that he was he was basically running stable, uh, but it didn't have uh, it was using a, a significant amount more power, and um, which you know kind of made me a little nervous because I was kind of like. Did he cripple something in the uh, in the thermal management? You know, is this thing going to overheat or something like that because it's running with unrestricted power or what's going on here? But uh, do you know anything else about that other than what you and I just talked about? Uh, I don't think it was like a significant amount of power more, um, but it was somebody I think replied to him on the core boot mailing list saying like the thing that he disabled is like part of how it is able to get very low power. So I don't mm-hmm. think it would be like anything worse than, you know, laptops from a few years ago. Um, but I guess it, it's working for him, so that's pretty promising. Yeah, now if, if we want to... You tried to flash the um, the firmware on your HP Chromebook and you couldn't get your clip on the on either of the firmwares um, on, the, on the machine, so you had to use the onboard flasher and you weren't willing to write over your firmware without the ability to, you know, plug on, uh, plug in your clip and rewrite it if need be. Um, so how is he doing this? Is he like uh, soldering into the board and flashing the chip that way and disabling things, or is he using the onboard flasher to do all this? Yeah, I actually forgot about that part. I'm assuming that he's just using the um, the the clip and that I was probably not on the right chip, or it's weird to get access to or something. I should have asked him, um, or I guess I could still on Twitter, to uh, post a picture of clipping on that chip. But um, yeah, yeah, I'm assuming he's just going through that route the, the normal way. Yeah, in fact, um, I was looking at my X220 uh, recently as well, and he's done work on the X220 management engine. And uh, core boot folks have fixed a number of things, improved performance on a number of other things. Uh, so I'm, uh, and they have scripts so you can build core boot for the X220 with these options enabled, and you don't have to try and f- configure them and figure them out on your own. Um, you just need to get your uh, your BIOS extracted so you can use the Ethernet and VGA, or a portion of the VGA, the management engine, and a couple other things to build this new core boot image, and then uh, you can flash it to your firmware. So I'm going to try that again, um, hopefully not too long from now. You were working on the uh, the MMC thing with Patrick a few weeks ago. Did that go anywhere? <sighs> yeah, um, as far as I got with it is that, um, let's see... It looks like um, when the Skylake support was added to like NetBSD and stuff, um, they're doing a, a, a reset on the SDHC controller uh, that hangs off the PCI bus. 
and apparently um, resetting the hardware and then initializing, uh, what was it? There was some quirk that was enabled. Uh, once you did that, the Skylake platform apparently has, it's either like a 2-byte or 4-byte offset that you need to account for when you start sending commands. Um, but those two things combined were supposed to fix all that stuff. And so I started to look at the NetBSD driver again, not knowing if this is going to make my MMC driver work. Um, but I, uh, I started to, uh, see how, how difficult it is to add this quirks framework into the PCI SDHC. And, uh, basically that's where I kind of like didn't, ha I haven't had time to work on since then. Um, but they have like, I don't know, five or six different quirks modes that they enable. And basically it just, uh, detects the Skylake platform and it says, oh, you know, fire off this quirk, which will send a couple different commands to the controller to reset it and, um, do a couple other things so that it gets initialized properly. Hmm. Yep. Uh, so are you still using that as a Chromebook? Yeah, I'm using it, um, as an OpenBSD machine, uh, I had to do a complete factory restore using the recovery media um, because Chrome OS just went belly up. I don't know if this is my success or lack of success with the MMC or not, but uh, <laughs> and then uh, I did I did the restore, plugged in my micro SD card and started booting off that again. Uh, using OpenBSD, and again, I was working on MMC stuff, and I was like, oh, still doesn't work, oh, still doesn't work. And then one day, it wouldn't boot into Chrome OS anymore. Uh, so I was like, okay, I'm hosing stuff up, I have to be. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm not using Chrome OS on it anymore because I keep breaking things. Uh, maybe that's me getting closer, maybe it's me completely uh, hosing up the hardware, but uh, it doesn't it doesn't recover from that state. I'm not able to... Uh, use Chrome OS again unless I do another recovery and restore and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. That is weird. Yeah. I really want to get that. I think that uh, knowing what I know now, I, I can because um, it's not in front of me right now. But I, I took some time to document um, how the reset needs to happen and what commands need to be sent mm -hmm. uh, when you detect Skylake. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, the whole reason this doesn't work is because it's expecting... A different command and so I need to do that stuff and I think once I reset the PCI device and then send these different sequences sequence of commands it will work um, I am getting responses from it so it has to be powered on it's just an issue right now of the commands I'm sending it um, I'm trying to um, let's see what's happening here so uh, yeah, I can't remember exactly which thing is is hosing up, but it's it's trying to read the configuration, and it does read the configuration, so you get things like power and um, modes and all that kind of stuff, and it's trying to write something back, and when it tries to write something back, that's where it's failing, but um, it, it's really not a whole lot of work. I mean, I, I think that the difference between... Uh, or the difference in changes to add support for Skylake and NetBSD and stuff was really small. So hopefully I should be able to get it going if I get motivated and uh, overcome my, um, I don't know how you want to say this, lack of kernel knowledge when it comes to uh, that stuff. Yeah. All right. 
Well, we are, uh, we have faith in you, Brandon. Yeah. It's in your hands now and you're the only one who can do it. Yeah. I, I think you sold your Chromebook and yeah, I I was, I kind of lost interest at that point. I was like, I'm going to use this SD card for the rest of my life now. (laughs) Yeah. With no suspense support. Yeah. Um, cool. Was there anything else uh, you wanted to chat about? No, let's wrap this up. All right, this has been episode 39 of Garbage. Uh, if there's anything you'd like to hear us talk about, you can reach us on Twitter at GarbageFM or through our website at Garbage.FM. Brandon, how can people reach you? Yeah, if you want to reach out, you can uh, reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at NoMercyMod with a K-N-O-W, and you can also find me on Google Plus uh, from time to time as well. I'm on the web at JCS.org and on Twitter at JCS.